we are specifically looking this morning in verses 22 through 26 of Mark chapter 14 and the details concerning the very first Lord's Supper. The very first Lord's Supper. If you have been a Christian for any length of time, you know that the Lord's Supper, sometimes called the Eucharist, sometimes called communion, sometimes also called the Lord's table, all four of those phrases essentially meaning the same thing, the place where we celebrate the receiving of the bread and the cup as a memorial to the death of Jesus Christ is a blessed event. It's so marvelously woven into the very fabric of the life of the church of Jesus Christ as it has been from this very first moment it was instituted. This, as many of you know, is one of two ordinances in the church, the Lord's Supper and Baptism being those two things which we are commanded to undergo regularly in the life of the fellowship of the brethren because it speaks of so many wonderful realities of the Christian life. Of course, baptism, baptism signifies the reality of someone's new life in Christ and their testimony of having been saved, having been imparted the regenerating work of the Spirit of God to believe and trust in Christ and repent of their sins, and to have that testimony given in the waters of baptism is a glorious thing. And the Lord's Supper is like it because it celebrates the continuing life that we have in Christ based on his death and his burial and his resurrection. We celebrate the body and blood of Christ every time we partake of those elements. And we do that monthly here at the Bible Church of Little Rock because we want to be able to celebrate as a regular reminder the death of Christ until he comes. And we find ourselves in the text of Mark 14, beginning in verse 22, the very institution, the very initial organizing of what we regularly celebrate as a church, the Lord's table. Now this morning, in our time together, I want us to focus in on three specific elements that surround the matter of the institution of the Lord's Supper as we know it. The first point that I want us to understand actually finds its origin in the context surrounding the Lord's Supper and not specifically in verses 22 to 26. And that is what we might call the context surrounding the Lord's Supper. And I want to give that to you because I want to paint a picture in your mind about what is really going on as Jesus institutes this very supper of himself. In other words, we're going to talk about the context that surrounds the very idea of what Jesus is about to do when he offers the bread and the wine. And then, as we move into the actual text of verses 22 through 26, 
we're going to see the celebration of the Lord's Supper itself in verses 22 through 24, and then finally we'll see the conclusion to the Lord's Supper in verses 25 and 26. So we have the context of the Lord's Supper, we have the celebration of the Lord's Supper, and finally the conclusion to the Lord's Supper as given to us here. Now, you might ask the question, why don't you just go right to the verses and talk about the Lord's Supper itself? Well, I normally would do that. But because we're in a gospel that has other elements that are not specifically given to us in Mark, but as a holistic gospel in Matthew and Luke and also the non-synoptic John, we have some details that are not listed here for us that are extremely important in order to understand the full context of the Lord's Supper as given to us here by Jesus. What is that context? Well, you remember from last time that we spoke about the fact that there was going to be, as Jesus prophesied it, a betrayal. A betrayal. In verse 10 of chapter 14, we read this. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went off to the chief priests in order to betray him, that is Christ, to them, to the chief priests. They were glad when they heard this. They were rejoicing and promised to give him money. And he began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. So, one of the aspects of the context of this passage is that Jesus is instituting the Lord's Supper, the very act that will culminate in his actual death on a cross, which will then be symbolized or memorialized throughout all of the history of the age of the church in the context of a man who was the initiator of the very death of Christ, and that is Judas, who was to betray him. That's a part of the context of this passage. It's a part of the context of the Lord's Supper itself, because Judas himself is a part of the Lord's Supper. He's a part of the very thing for which Jesus is going to say later, because of what Judas did and because of my desire to allow it to be so, I will die for the sins of many. That's a part of the context. There's another part of the context, and we discovered that last time as well, and that is for us revealed in verse 12. On the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, his disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? You remember we discussed last time that the Passover was a great celebration on the part of the Jews. It was a time that they again were memorializing the very thing that they had been delivered from, and that was death. Their ancestors had, of course, as you know, been sold into slavery, into bondage in Egypt, sort of a, a picture or a type of what Joseph himself had been slavery to. And this children of Israel, looking at the elements of it, were incredibly important for the Jews to remember. Why? 
because just as Joseph had been sold into slavery and just as the people of Israel had been sold into slavery, they themselves, the very Jews that Jesus were speaking to, were also sold into slavery, not just to the Roman government, but to their own sin, sold into the slave block of sin itself, our own sinfulness, our own transgression. And so this would be a great celebration. It would be the picture of those who were the ancestors of these very Jews whom Jesus was talking to and discipling, and they would look back on those times and say, praise God, thanks be to God, that the angel of death passed over our ancestors so that we could be alive this very day. And you remember I told you also that as these disciples, according to verses 13 to 16, actually prepared for the Passover. They prepared in intricate detail all of the elements that even Jews today celebrate in honor of that Passover. What were some of those elements? Well, I told you last time. They had uh, a stewed fruit. They had uh, bitter herbs that were prepared. Of course, the fruit was a preparation that actually meant that they were uh, looking at the very elements that memorialized the straw and the brick that they were used in order to see their Egyptian bondage to their ancestors. That's what that fruit was supposed to depict. And the bitter herbs, that was depicting the bitterness of the bondage itself in Egypt. And you see, all of these elements of the preparation of Passover were given to them so that they could understand what that bondage meant, how hard it was, how painful it was, and yet how God had so miraculously delivered his people from that very bondage. This was a time in which they were seriously and soberly looking at these elements. When you picked up those things in your hands, when you ate those bitter herbs, you were saying to yourself, I understand what my ancestors went through. By the very picture that it conjures up in my, my mind or in my mouth as I taste those bitter herbs, I understand the bitterness of that bondage that my ancestors went through. And when I eat of that lamb, that Passover lamb, that Paschal lamb that was supplied to me in this very Passover, I am looking at God's ultimate deliverance, the deliverance, the passing over of the angel of death. See, there were a number of these elements. And those elements had to be intricately detailed in this Passover celebration so all of the ambiance of this Passover could be celebrated by these Jews. And now Jesus answers another contextual question as a part of this, and it's the Lord's Supper. The, the time when Jesus is going to say, even if they don't understand it now, even if they don't recognize exactly what Jesus is up to by the celebration of the wine and the cup and the bread, they are going to understand that in time, just as we understand it so very clearly now, these days. We understand that what Jesus was doing was instituting a supper, a celebration for which his own body and his own blood was a celebration of what we could call the ultimate Passover meal, the ultimate idea that God had passed over the sins of men and women, not by a physical lamb, not by red blood on the lintel of a doorpost, but by the very blood and body of Jesus himself dying on that cross, being raised again, and the supper was to depict the idea that the same sins that had been forgiven of the old ancestors of the Jews are now forgiven on the part of everyone who would ever believe. That's the ultimate institution of the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table, communion. 
That's surely one of the contextual ideas here. But you know there's one other? There's one other here. And, and it's, it's frankly an amazing context that Mark doesn't choose to give us here, but John does. And if you will, I want you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 13. John 13. Sometimes in our Bible study we have to take some of these gospel accounts and we have to weave them together to see exactly what's happening at any one moment. And in John 13 we have a very amazing item that Mark chooses to leave out but that John centers in on. And you say, well, why does Mark choose to leave it out? Well, he chooses to leave it out because the Holy Spirit wanted him to leave it out because obviously the Holy Spirit wanted John to camp out on this idea so that it could be brought powerfully to us by him. And we find it in John chapter 13, verse 1. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end which in and of itself we don't have time for, but is a great statement about God's preservation of the saints. He loved them to the end, literally to the uttermost, to perfection. Verse 2 says, During supper, during this Passover meal and the supper of the Lord, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, rose up from supper. And what Mark doesn't tell us, John does right here at this moment. And he says, And he laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. And he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. In the context, beloved, that is an amazing, amazing thing. You realize that at the very night that Jesus knows the betrayer is in his midst, Judas is there, the devil having already put his own evil deeds into the heart of the son of Simon, Judas Iscariot, to betray, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he'd come forth from God and was going back to God, nevertheless, in spite of the betrayer in his very midst, in spite of the knowledge that Judas had the heart that he had, and that Satan himself had come into the very supper of the Lord, nevertheless, rose up from supper, laid aside his garments, taking a towel, girding himself, pouring water into a basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet, including which disciples' feet? Judas. Judas. It's amazing. Knowing all that he knew, knowing that Judas was the very one who would sell out the relationship between himself and Jesus. Jesus, nevertheless, picked up a towel, put water into a basin, and washed Judas' feet. Verse 6, so he came to Simon Peter. He said to him, Lord, 
Do you wash my feet? In other words, you're, you're not going to wash my feet. This is, this is the reverse. You're the, you're the master. I'm the servant. Do you wash my feet? At least he has some measure, some modicum of respect and honor for the master. Surely this is not to happen to me by you, Lord. And Jesus answered and said to him, verse 7, What I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. And Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Lord, I, I can't allow you to do such a thing. It's, it's beneath you. Jesus answered, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter then said, Oh, I understand, Lord. Then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. In other words, if, if, if you're telling me something that means that you and I have no part with each other and all you're talking about is just washing my feet, well, if we're not going to have a part with each other, if you don't wash my feet, then wash all of me because I want to have all the part I can have with you. But Jesus said in verse 10, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. And now you can tell that he's moving away from the physical realities into the spiritual dimension, and he's saying, you don't need to have your whole body cleansed because you're already believing. What you really need to have is your dirty feet washed because as you walk in and around this world, there are sins that collect, as it were, on your feet, and you need to have those things washed away, but your body, in essence, your soul is already cleansed. But I tell you what, there is a person in this room who's not cleaned in his body, in his soul. And of course, that's a reference in verse 11 to Judas. In verse 12, So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? Do you understand the spiritual significance of all of this? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. In other words, I didn't wash your feet because I was that menial servant. I didn't wash your feet because I was the one who was supposed to do that. I was the one who was commanded to do that. I wasn't commanded to do that. That's not my role. That's not what I'm supposed to do in terms of the title of being master and Lord and teacher. You call me Lord and teacher, and that is right. I am that. But I tell you this. If I then, verse 14, the Lord and the teacher, wash your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. In other words, if I'm willing to do that for all of you, then you ought to be willing to do that for each other. None of you ought to think of yourself that you are like the master and teacher, that you're so high, so mighty, so holy, so above doing such a thing that you would not serve one another. You also ought to wash one another's feet. For I, just in the very act that I performed, gave you an example that you should also do as I do to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. I'm setting you a pattern to follow, an example, that even though I'm the master and the teacher, even though I'm Lord, I stooped low in order to wash your feet, which would have been uh, the most ugly, the most debased, the most servant-oriented, slave-oriented task that one could have done at this time. They had people who were, who were servants, who served food, and who made up rooms, and who cleaned the house, and who did all of the menial tasks. 
but even the servant was above washing the feet of someone who came in from the house. You know, they had dirty roads and dusty environment, and there was a bowl and there was a towel, and they put it there by the front door, and a slave, not a servant, but a slave, the most menial person in the whole society was then instructed that as soon as visitors came in the house, you were to take that bowl of water and you were to wash their feet so that they wouldn't bring all of that dust inside. And that was what a slave of the most menial environment was to do in that situation. And Jesus was saying, if I'm willing to do that, you also ought to be willing to do that to each other. And if you know these things, if you know the heart of servanthood, if you know what it means to be a servant, you are blessed, not only if you know it, but if you do them. But then he changes in verse 18. I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen. That's obviously a reference to the 11. But it is that the Scripture may be fulfilled he who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. See, what's he talking about? He's talking about the very fulfillment of prophecy that says that Judas was destined to do this from the very beginning, that the Scripture may be fulfilled. What Scripture? Psalm 41. Listen to this. You don't have to turn there, but this is the very psalm which is now being quoted by Jesus himself and this is the background for this very scenario. He says in Psalm 41, As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. My enemies speak evil against me. When will he die and his name perish? And when he comes to see me, he speaks falsehood. His heart gathers wickedness to itself. When he goes outside, he tells it. And then this, all who hate me whisper together against me. Against me they devise my hurt. Now this is the flavor of Judas's heart and his betrayal of Jesus. And Jesus is lifting this out of Psalm 41, applying it to himself. And he's saying, those who hate me are whispering against me. Do you remember the text in Mark 14 saying that the chief priests whispered against him? Judas whispered against him. The people whispered against him. He says, verse 8, a wicked thing is poured out upon him that when he lies down, he will not rise up again. Even my close friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Quoting from that very psalm, a friend in whom I trusted, Judas, and you have to be able to affirm and see that what Jesus is doing by not only quoting from Psalm 41 and in the context of Mark 14 that we talked about last week, the very idea of taking a morsel of bread and placing it into that, that bowl and extending that to Judas, literally handing that morsel to Judas and saying, the one in whom I will put this morsel in his hand is the one who betrays me. And he says, in the very fulfillment of Scripture itself, the very one in whom I trusted, he has lifted up his heel against me. This is, this is the real context, beloved, of this supper. You know, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, as we do each month, we talk about the fact that the Lord died for us, that his bread, his body was given for us, that his blood, the cup, was poured out for us in sacrificial death, and we 
talk about that and we talk about the fact that we are celebrating his coming again. We celebrate his death. And for us, at least for me, it conjures up in my mind great thankfulness, great gratitude that Jesus Christ has died for me. And I celebrate those things every time I confess my sins. I look to the Lord for cleansing and forgiveness because I know I've received it on the cross of Calvary. And the Lord's Supper becomes for me this euphoria of worship and praise because I can celebrate again and again and again what the Lord has done in forgiving me. And yet, in the very context of the first initiation of this supper, it's in the context of betrayal. Judas is betraying Christ. And yet, even in that betrayal, even in that dastardly deed, Jesus has dipped that morsel into the bowl and handed it to Judas, the sign that I'm willing to have fellowship with you, I'm willing to have intimacy with you, I'm willing to continue to have a relationship with you, even though you betray me, and even though I have a trusted relationship with the disciples, I am knowledgeable that even though I have gone to the nth in offering you my very intimate life, you'll rise up your heel against me. And so therefore, because that deed is done, because Judas has rejected that morsel, and because he has rejected the Lord himself and the offer of the entrustment of himself to Judas, verse 19, from now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, truly, truly, I say to you, that one, that one of you will betray me. That was it. That was the line. It was crossed. It's over. It's done. The betrayal has happened. It's done. It's finished. Judas is set. And of course, the disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. There was one reclining on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. That was John, of course. He didn't want to refer to himself as John. He wanted to refer to himself as the one who Jesus loved. I understand that. That's what I'd want to say, right? Instead of calling myself John, I'd want to say, I'm the one whom Jesus loves. And Simon Peter, verse 24, gestured to him and said to him, tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. We don't know why Peter doesn't want to just come right out with his own statements. He's always doing that. Apparently he might think, is it I? Surely it is not I, but I don't want to ask him myself. You ask him. Sort of like uh, pushing your, your little brother up to the front, saying, uh, you ask the question. I have that all the time. I have one of my daughters, who's close in age to another daughter, always having that daughter come to ask me if they can go play outside. And I say, well, why doesn't that other daughter come and ask me that? Well, she's asked me to ask you. And I say, well, if she wants to play outside, she can come and ask me. And I rarely ever hear her come to ask me that question. She's always pushing the other forward. He, leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? John says, Lord, who is it? Jesus then answered, that is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. 
Now, no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. They didn't understand. They didn't. They, they didn't really understand all of the context, and even as you put all the Gospels account, uh, accounts together, they still don't really know who it is and what it is that's happening. Uh, maybe there's a bit of a spiritual uh, cataract on their eyes. Uh, the Lord is still shielding them from all of the, the intimate knowledge about all of these things and about Judas and his betrayal itself, but somehow they're still confused, and they don't know really what's going on, but Jesus does and Judas does, and Judas leaves. They were even confused as to why Jesus gave them the morsel. It says, for some were supposing, verse 29, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus was saying to him when he said, what you do, do quickly, buy the things we have need of for the feast, or else that he should give something to the poor. They don't really even understand what all of this means. And so after receiving the morsel, Judas went out immediately, and it was night. You see, the context of the Lord's Supper It's not just the idea of the preparation of the Passover. It's not just the idea of the celebration of the bread and the cup. It's not just the idea of the disciples and their singing hymns and praising God and all of those things that are associated with the Passover celebration. It's also the context of Jesus Christ knowing the betrayer, knowing who he is, extending an offer of intimacy with Judas, and even going so far as to wash his own feet. There's a rejection. There's a, a contemplation. There's a decision. And Judas says, no. I want my money more than I want intimacy with you. And he sells him out. Jesus, knowing that, John says, troubled in spirit, nevertheless does what? He takes some bread, and as they're reclining around that table, he breaks off parts of that bread, and he passes it around to those who are leaning on their side, and they take that bread, and according to Mark chapter 14, verse 22, he says, take, this is my body, bless it. By the way, the word blessing there, the word thanksgiving, Eucharist. That's the word. That's the Greek word there. That's where we receive the idea of the Eucharist, the thanksgiving. He gave it to them and he said, Take, eat, this is my body. He didn't mean that the bread was his body literally. That's what Roman Catholics believe. That's even what Luther himself believed as a Roman, former Roman Catholic. He believed that it was actually saying, this is my body, but it can't be. Uh, the word bread is masculine for sure, but the word this is neuter. It's not referring to a masculine idea. It's just referring to this piece of bread, this inanimate object, uh, this in a neuter sense. It's not the idea that Jesus was saying, this is my body literally. That's not true. He's simply saying, this is my body. This is a... This is a representation of what is about to happen. You don't understand, but in a little while you will. When you see me hanging on that cross, you realize that when I say, this is that bread, here, have it, it is mine, it's the idea that my body has been given to you. Just as you place that bread on your lips, you know that I am giving my life in sacrificial death, my body to you. That's what he means. That's the very celebration. 
Isn't it true that our Bible in so many other places talks about the body of Christ, not the, the church, but the physical body of Christ, and that it was given to us? I love what Peter says in 1 Peter 2 when he says that the sins that we committed were actually sins for which the payment of that sin was given in Christ's own body. His body was given for us so that our sins should be forgiven. And then he says in verse 23, and when he had taken a cup and given thanks, there's that Eucharist, he gave it to them, that is the cup, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. In other words, there was an old covenant. And that old covenant was the idea that sacrifices had to be made regularly so that people's sins could be expiated. But now he's saying, this is my blood as represented in this wine, and it's being poured out for you so that a new covenant could be inaugurated, and that new covenant is in my blood. It's the ratification that when Jesus gives his blood and sacrificial death, and believers could be ushered into a new covenant, a new kind of relationship. No more would bulls and the blood of goats have to be sacrificed year after year. And the writer to Hebrews says, no more, but the blood of Jesus Christ has been sacrificed forever for us. That's what it is. That's what it means. The new covenant affirmation of Jeremiah 31, there will be a new day, and that day is what Jesus is picturing right here. And then he says when he concludes, verse 25, Truly I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. What's he saying there? He's simply saying, I've instituted this supper, and while we have shared in the bread and the wine, I am going to refuse to drink anything else until you and I drink it together again in the kingdom of God. I think it's a reference to Revelation 19. The idea that there's going to be a marriage supper of the Lamb, and when that supper comes, it will be the supper of everyone who has ever believed in Jesus Christ, anyone who's ever celebrated the idea of the body and blood of Jesus as the sins forgiven for their own sins, that that marriage supper of the Lamb would be the living reality of what Jesus is saying here. When I do it again, I'm going to do it right then, not before. You and I are going to drink again of this fruit of the vine, but it's not going to be until we drink it together again as a marriage supper of the Lamb, as the supper of all suppers, and it's going to be in the kingdom of God. And how could you not do exactly what they did in verse 26? After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. They sang. That was very much a part of what was happening at the end of a Passover celebration, the Hallel Psalm, Psalms 116, 117, 118. Pictures again what God had done in delivering his people. And boy, was this a picture for which they would have sang their hearts out singing, hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. This would have been the hallelujah of all hallelujahs. And when he institutes this supper, he's saying the reason why you ought to sing these great hallelujahs is not because of a physical 
Passover lamb that dies and his blood is poured out, but the living reality that I myself, Jesus of Nazareth, I will die for you. My body will be given to you. My blood will be poured out in violent sacrificial death and it will be for us the most wonderful and marvelous and beautiful thing to again drink of this fruit of the vine in the kingdom of God for which all kinds of hallelujahs will be sung forever and ever and ever. And that's exactly what happens in Revelation 19. That's exactly what happens. That's exactly what the Lord tells us is going on in that very context. That's why I think it really relates to what's happening here, what he's prophesying. It says in verse 5, And a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. And I fell down to worship. All kinds of hallelujahs going on, all kinds of praisings of God. Why? because the marriage supper of the Lamb has finally come. Everybody's together. The supper is there. The bridegroom is there. The Lamb himself with a capital L, the Passover Lamb with a capital P. Jesus Christ has died, has been raised, has been coronated, ascended as the sovereign Lord. He gained the victory. This is, this is why the Lord's Supper is what it, what it is. And I pray that no one of us after hearing the very institution of this supper and celebrating it month after month after month would not allow it to become mundane anymore. This is, this is our song. This is our hallelujah. And while we know that we can't celebrate it in its fullness right now, even though we celebrate it month after month and it's not in its fullness, it will be. It's, it's an anticipatory celebration. Lord, we know that one day as we're celebrating this right now and we have all of the cares of this world, we have all the vicissitudes of life, all of the struggles, all of the problem, all of the pain, when I come to the Lord's place and I celebrate his supper, I can commune with him, I can know in this celebration that one day there's going to be a grand supper and I'm going to see the Lamb himself. Oh, what a glorious day that's going to be. The Lord's Supper. Can you imagine celebrating the Lord's Supper in the Lord's presence? What a day that's going to be. Do you know that day? Do you know that day is going to come for you? Do you have the settled confidence assurance, confident assurance that you will celebrate it with the Lord, the Lamb himself on that day? I trust that you are. I, I plead with you to come to Christ if you have not. Celebrate with us, the redeemed, the Lord's Supper, will you? Let's pray together. Father, this is the glorious institution of your supper. This is the one that you've said will come, and we are rejoicing that it comes. And even though, Lord, it, it may come later than we assume, later than we desire, you're not slow about your promises. It will come. It will come in your time. 
And until that day comes, may we celebrate each and every month in anticipation of your coming, your supper, your marriage supper with us, the redeemed, the righteous saints who are giving their acts as a testimony to you. Lord, we want that day. And even though it may seem to us at times with each month's passing, when we celebrate that bread and that juice, we, we don't want it to be ho-hum. We don't want it to be mundane. We don't want it to be mechanical. We want to be able in our minds to focus on the right things that you instituted this supper even in the midst of the context of someone who was betraying you. Lord, let us not betray you with our lives of disobedience. Let us focus in on what you are all about. Sovereign Lord, the ultimate Passover lamb. May we celebrate with you by drinking of the fruit of the vine in the kingdom of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.